Hello, I'm Michael Crawford Simmering, and this is Environmental Voices Rising, Women at the Mic. This podcast brings you conversations with women environmental leaders who have been working in their communities, creating innovative and sustainable solutions that address climate change and environmental inequities. I got tired of mainstream media's take on climate change. With doom and gloom scenarios that make you feel overwhelmed and anxious about the future. Let's change the conversation. Do we really need to be planning on Mars as our next home? Let's not give up on this world. Our call to action is for you to join us and inspire you to find a place in your community to support and make a difference. Today's episode is about oysters and climate change. Anywhere there's a shoreline, you can find signs of the impacts of climate change sea level rise, erosion of beaches, pollution, and ocean acidification. Also working on these coastal shorelines, you will find a growing network of scientists, ocean farmers, environmental restoration leaders, and everyday citizens. One important restoration project is oyster restoration, and there are many such versions of it ongoing around the world. The benefits of oyster restoration are multiple. Oysters can absorb carbon and filter nitrogen pollutants from the water. Another advantage is the natural structures they create when they grow together. Oysters live and grow in colonies that are built when the oysters stack their shells close together and on top of each other. These rows of shells become a very hard structure that acts as a natural barrier, protecting coastal areas from storm surges during big weather events, as well as protecting from rising sea level and beach erosion. One aspect of oyster restoration is about rebuilding oyster reefs that once grew naturally along coastal areas. And then there's the oysters themselves. Replenishing native oyster populations in coastal areas is key to ecosystem restoration, water filtering, oyster farming, and oyster eating. Today, we are going to talk with a woman who has had a lot of experience with Restoration Project and is the founder and director of the Wild Oyster Project in San Francisco, Linda Hunter. Linda has worked with Greenpeace, the Farallones Marine Sanctuary, the Watershed Project, and in 2016, she founded the Wild Oyster Project that was partially inspired by New York City's Billion Oyster Project. She will share with us her work creating oyster restoration projects in San Francisco with Savior Shucks, an oyster recycling program, building oyster reefs instead of seawalls, restoring native oyster populations to the bay, and more importantly, engaging the community in oyster restoration to create a better future for our planet. Linda, welcome to Environmental Voices Rising Women at the Mic. I'd like to begin by asking you to share with us what inspired you to create a restoration project specifically focused on oysters. The Wild Oyster Project was incubated at the Watershed Project. It was a a program there called The Living Shore. And um, I was inspired by projects that were going on on the East Coast but also remarkably by two writers who are foodies, you know, they're food writers. 
And one is Rowan Jacobson, who wrote the book on oysters. And the other one is uh, Paul Greenberg, who is a regular contributor to the New York Times and wrote a book called Four Fish. And I just learned so much from them. I actually had an epiphany, like, wow, I should have chosen a different life path because <laughs> these guys are writing about food, traveling places and eating well. <laughs> and, and both of them are so passionate about oysters and about oyster restoration. On the eve of, Paul Greenberg lives in Manhattan in, at Ground Zero. And on the, on the eve of when Hurricane Sandy hit that island, and caused such damage. And I mean, the subways were flooded. He wrote this great piece for the New York Times called An Oyster in the Storm. New York mirrors San Francisco in the, in the sense that uh, there used to be millions and millions of oysters and, and, and they were all overfished or pollution or development and they all kind of went away. But, but Paul wrote this great piece about filling his bathtub with water because he knew the power was going to go out and, and he wanted to make certain he had plenty of water. And, and then he thought, well, I should drink that bottle of champagne that's in the fridge before it goes out. And, but, I, but then he was lamenting the fact that he didn't have, you know, a dozen oysters to enjoy with his champagne. Also, he lamented the fact that all of the oysters had gone from the New York Harbor because that would have spared that island much of the devastation because it would have acted as a shield against the the rising tide. So, so those two food writers were very, very inspirational for me. Plus, there's a, a woman whose name is Kate Orff, and she is an incredible uh, landscape architect who works from New York City, but she has a TED Talk <laughs> where she describes, she, she was the person who coined the phrase oysterscaping, and she envisioned a world where you could use oysters in a very creative way, not only for ecosystem protection and building healthier ecosystems, but in a way that, that would be appealing to someone with a landscape architect's sensibility, you know, so, and she is just so inspiring. So, so that's kind of how I got started. That is a sweet inspiration story, oysterscaping and oyster-loving foodies. So now you have the Wild Oyster Project. Let's talk about how the restoring native oysters, affectionately known as ollies, to an ecosystem like San Francisco Bay works, and how building oyster reefs helps to mitigate sea level rise, and then the important educational and community engagement projects that are ongoing with the wild oyster projects. But first, let's start with your oyster shell recycling program and the partnerships that you have with local restaurants. Our Savior Shucks program was started four years ago, and at one point we had seven restaurants who were donating shell, but the pandemic kind of put a 
the kibosh on that, at least for a while, because during the first lockdown, all of the restaurants shut down. And that program was actually on hiatus for about four months. And then we got two restaurants that were already kind of set up for outdoor dining. They're both on the waterfront, Pier 23 and um, Mission Rock Resort. And we've been collecting shell from them for the last six months, except for that short period of time when they got locked down again. So basically... The way it works is, for the most part, the restaurants call us and say, we think that what you're doing is really great and we want to help. And so what happens is a volunteer, and sometimes me, we arrive at the restaurant uh, with two empty buckets and we pick up two buckets full of shell. You know, restaurants are very smooth running operations or there's a lot of chaos that you don't see because uh but it's a very choreographed thing so we we take great care not to get in anyone's way like we don't walk through the dining room usually the shells that are waiting for us are kept in the walk-in so we just go straight there and that's why it's actually an easy activity to do and still you know maintain safety because you just are going in there mask pick up the shell and leave two empty buckets. We love our restaurants. Our very The very first establishment to um, donate Shell was um, this really cool, funky bar in the Mission called El Rio. They have a big patio, and they, every Friday night, they used to just give away oysters. They, they would buy 100 oysters and shock them, and people would come and eat them. And they're just a wonderful place. Sadly, they... They were closed for almost a year. They just reopened last week just for uh, cocktail takeout, I guess. So I don't know that they're still doing oysters. And as I said, like some, some of our restaurants probably won't open back up. It's, it's been really tough on restaurants, the pandemic has. It's nice to know that if I go out to one of these restaurants and have oysters, the shells are recycled. And I am contributing to an environmental restoration project. Tell us what you do with all the shells once you collect them. What's the next step? Right. And we have five shell mounds or midden sites around the bay. Our most popular ones are at nurseries um, with chickens. And we love that because if you just put dirty oyster shell out, um, it can get a little stinky and it can attract critters. But if you, if you have chickens, we, we put the shells in what we call the chicken lounge. And then the chickens peck the little bits of oyster that are still left on the shell. Because even if you pride yourself in the elegance of the shuck, which many shuckers do, there's still that little bit of abductor muscle that's left on the shell. And it can get kind of kind of smelly. But the chickens love oysters. It's very, very good for them. It helps with their digestion. In fact, chicken farmers buy crushed shell to add to their feed. So it's it's been a great partnership. It also is is kind of a fun thing for kids and adults too. I mean, just to see like the chickens go, yay, the oyster people are here and run over to start pecking at the shell. So the, the shell needs to be cured for at least a couple of years. So every 
couple weeks or once a month, we take the the shell out of the chicken lounge and we put it on top of a container office. So it's exposed to the air and the wind and the rain lately. And it just gets, uh, you know, once it's been up there for, you know, a few days a week, it's just pretty much cured. We actually um, have been told that we need to cure it for at least two years. Although on the East Coast, they say six months. And um, uh, what, you know, their concerns are that um, since the shell that's collected is not native oyster shell, it's actually farmed oysters, mostly Pacific oysters like Kumamoto's or Miyagi. And um, they just want to make certain that there's nothing that's going to be put back into the water that has, you know, some sort of invasive or pathological. So my understanding is that the shells help build a foundation for other oysters because oysters like to live and grow together. Yeah, oysters, if, if oysters were putting a, an ad on Craigslist, a personals ad, it would say oysters seeking other oysters because, um, you know, that's what they're drawn to. That's how you, you make it. Oysters build their home on the on the backs of their ancestors. So even the oysters that have died, they're still providing substrate for the new baby oysters. And there's many ways that you can provide that substrate. You can make reef balls, as you have done, Michael, or you can put them in bags, or you can uh, make some other structures. The important thing that it has a rough texture um, with some shell that's going that that's going to attract the baby oyster. COVID-19 has put a damper on every single nonprofit that does community engagement because we can't safely get lots of volunteers out to work on big projects like building an oyster reef. But we did come up with this really cool idea to create oyster base camps, which are kind of like a smaller version of an oyster reef. They're a staging area for young oysters and burgeoning oyster populations that we hope will help us um, gather data to, to decide where are the best places to site oyster reefs. And it's a way that, because they're so small, they're they're actually 24 inches by 24 by 13, and they're these small cages. I mean, one person could pick the you know pick it up, as opposed to a reef ball which weighs 300 pounds. And we're going to put them in five places on the shoreline and collect data. And this can be done safely even during. COVID because you don't have to get close. One or two people could could actually monitor each base camp, uh, collect the data, enter it into a database, and they can remain masked and socially distanced from one another. I actually worked on one of the early reef building projects, the big heavy ones. So I'd like to ask you to tell us more about reef building projects that go into the water and how the base camps work. Okay. So oysters love, they love other oysters. So when a baby oyster is born, it actually has 
wings and a foot and it swims around the water column looking to make the most important decision of its life and that's where it's going to settle. Before when there were billions of oysters in the bay, they had no problem finding their cohorts, finding other oysters to settle. But now they'll just kind of settle on anything. We once pulled a a plastic chair out of the bay on a shoreline cleanup, and it was covered with wild oysters. But what they're looking for is other shell, and that's why we collect shell. So the first oyster reef that the community oyster reef that was built, the one that you helped with, we built 100 reef balls using a substance called baycrete that was concrete and crushed oyster shell. It was a labor of love, as you know, and we did it the old-fashioned way. We had an oyster and a, and a mold, and uh, so we built and uh, the funny part of that story is when it got time to, when we finally got all our permits in place and we, it was time to deploy those reef balls, I talked someone into um, deploying them for us, and um, which was quite an expensive co- uh, contribution on his part. And he said, well, how are you going to get the reef balls that weigh 300 pounds a piece to the barge so we can deploy them? according to your specifications, uh, your GPS coordinates. And I said, um, I think I could fit one at a time in the back of my Prius. And he just kind of, he sort of rolled his eyes and then he sent a flatbed truck with six strong men and uh, a crane and they put it on the flatbed truck and took it to the barge and then deployed the reefs for us. But, but since that community reef, which, which I'm, I'm very proud of, and it's been very successful, there's been lots of experimentation in the Bay and, and actually around the country to figure out just what are the, what are the correct structures to use? Because the reef balls have certain advantages. I mean, because they're so heavy, they don't, they don't get moved around. Uh, they have holes in them so other critters can swim through and hide. And But they're not very practical in terms of like having the community work from the beginning to the end because they're too heavy for, like you and I couldn't pick one up and place it in the bay. And so what, so these experiments were done using different types of structures, even things like bagged shell or cakes or uh, cages. And it turns out that oysters don't have a preference for uh, reef balls or uh, big, heavy, what are called cakes. They're kind of pyramid type structures you know they're just as happy with bagged shell they're just looking for it they're interested in the oyster shell not the structure that surrounds it and so and and since you know our part of our raison d'etre is community engagement we thought well let's do something that will be easier for the community to be able to deploy the structure so um so both the the base camps another idea that we have been uh, experimenting with is to use uh recycled uh, defunct crab pots 
and fill them with shell and put them in the bay, which are much more manageable than a reef ball. So that's what we're doing. I mean, the idea is to get cured shell into the water so that the remnant population of ollies can find them, attach to them, and create a reef. You mentioned that you were collecting data from the base camp sites. Can you tell us more about that? And are you collecting data on water filtering? Because I know oysters are also known for their ability to clean pollutants from the water, which helps the overall health of a coastal ecosystem. Right. That's that's what we call one of uh, oyster superpowers is their ability to clean water. And um, so some of the data that's collected from our base camps and, and that are collected in the, the reef at Point Pinole as well as air temperature and water temperature data, salinity levels, pH levels, oyster abundance, size, and species richness. So we don't today to have a way to say like we put in this oyster reef and the water is this much cleaner there's not enough abundance in the restoration efforts to make that call however there's plenty of anecdotal evidence that effect in fact our friends at the billion oyster project they have a reef in jamaica jamaica bay i think it's called and um it's a fairly large reef and they have uh, footage of like you can swim to the other side of the bay on the shoreline where the water is is quite murky and dirty and the closer you get to the oyster reef you can you can actually see visibly that the water is cleaner i mean you can do this in a and what we often used to do at um the watershed project is we would just take a bucket fill it with uh, Bay Area water, throw some live oysters in there and, and do our program and come back 20 minutes later and the water would be clean. So you can do it on a small scale, but until we have a greater number of oysters in the Bay, I'm not certain that we can measure that, but it's it's definitely one of the the things that oysters contribute to make a more healthy ecosystem. We will be right back with our episode of Oysters and Climate Change. And in terms of um, sea level rise, we do have evidence that oyster reefs attenuate the effects of rising tides caused by climate change by as much as 70%. So when you go to these planning meetings... I was going to ask about the planning meetings because I know coastal cities are becoming more concerned about rising sea levels. So even with more understanding of how living shorelines, ecosystem restoration projects with oyster reefs and eelgrass benefit everyone, how much are the planners still focused on creating concrete infrastructure projects as opposed to considering living shorelines? So w- when we attend these planning meetings, it's just like you said, Michael. I mean, like their idea, primarily because they're engineers, right? <laughs> they like to build things. But I mean, part of the solution seem to be things like, oh, let's put down more riprap or let's build a, a seawall. You know, what are we going to do to protect 
the ballpark in San Francisco. Let's build a seawall. But when actually you could achieve the same effect for much less expensive, you know, much more cheaply than than building a structure. Plus, you would have a, a living, breathing structure that is inviting to people and to things. And it, one of our objections has always been like, when you, when you come up with a solution that is designed to keep people away from the Bay, you know, by building more infrastructure, you know, it's, that defeats the purpose of doing restoration at all. If it's something that people can't see, touch, relate to. And um, oysters are, you know, simple, humble creatures that provide so much benefit to our local ecosystem. So COVID had us all staying home. And guess what? We started exploring local nature areas. I was hoping that this could spur more interest in greening shorelines instead of building concrete barriers. There's actually like a lot of development going on around the Bay, um, especially in the southern part of San Francisco, but also in Alameda Point. There's a very cool project that's happening called Depave Park, which is in its planning stages. But the idea is to take that former naval base, which has a lot of asphalt, and to account, I mean, Alameda, let's face it, is going to be the first one underwater. But it sort of accounts for the rising sea level by, first of all, reusing all the materials that are removed and making these lovely pathways, but also uh, creating marshland there that will absorb the rising tides and will create habitat for birds and fish and hopefully we're trying to get some oysters in there too. But um, one thing that I've noticed is that a lot more people are out on the bay because being in a kayak, being on a paddleboard, a canoe, it's a safe thing to do. It's fun. I mean, I'm delighted that so many people have taken an interest in actually being out on the water. Um, there's a new park that you would love, Michael. It's called Crane Cove Park, and it's right next to the Ramp, uh, which is a restaurant bar that you might know, and very close to our midden site in Hunter's Point. And um, it's really lovely because it's it combines the um, industrial look of the shoreline because it has cranes and with a beautiful new park that has, you know, green space. They brought in some sand and made a beach. So there's kids that are swimming there. People use it to launch their kayaks and their canoes. So, so that part is really heartening for me and I'd love to see it. And it's, it's just points to like, this is the reason why restoring an ecosystem is much better than building a seawall. Could you share with us what kind of educational programs you have created at the Wild Oyster Project and put it in the framework of the youth climate mobilization? Because I know the youth are very concerned and very anxious about the future of the planet. How do your educational programs help youth and adults as well see how restoration projects like the ones you have can contribute to addressing the issues of climate change? Yeah, well, the 
Wild Oyster Project, like many environmental nonprofits, the big focus of our education program had to do with hands-on learning, which just changed with COVID. But but we're really um, excited. We have this wonderful education manager, Reiko Endo, and she has engaged more than 200 people during COVID, 12 different teachers and their students. And I think it's a six-week program. And uh, that's like a half hour long that they do for Zoom. But it's really fun because she is fun. Like she did this, she did this really cool little program just about mollusks and about oysters that we put on our YouTube channel. And, and she's Japanese. And I said, Reiko, that was so that was so wonderful. Can you do it in Japanese? So, so she did another one where she's, she did it in Japanese and she sings a little song in Japanese about mollusks. And then she's wearing this like hat, this wool hat, which she pulls over her face, you know, just like a mollusk would do to like uh, slipped into its shell to hide from predators. Anyway, so everyone's kind of making it up as we go along now, but we've learned a lot from doing our education program online. And uh, we we just can't wait to um, get people out and especially students out into, you know, out into the environment again, get, get, their, get their feet wet. And the thing about an oyster reef, when you see that the oysters are like, once you understand that oysters have superpowers and they, they actually provide uh, a healthy ecosystem for all kinds of critters and they uh, protect our shores from flooding and from uh, rising seas. But if you're out there and you, and you, you're monitoring to see how many oysters are growing on your reef, then that's something that you can just see right then. And you can say, hey, it's like you don't have to wait a lifetime to see the results of your contribution. You know, every, every little, um, we're all connected, every critter. I mean, who knew that oysters were so important? I mean, we certainly didn't until we extirpated 85% of them around the world. But now we know how important they are and we'll bring them back. And I think that that is something that is concrete and can be measured and that youth, but adults too, can take pride in contributing to a project uh, that will truly make a difference. Thank you for sharing with us all the ways that you are involved with the community engagement projects, including restaurants and the schools. Tell us how anyone who might be interested in finding out more about you, how they can get a hold of the Wild Oyster Project. Yeah, if you go to our website, there's a place where you can sign up to be a volunteer and you can say what you would like to, you know, what interests you. We also have an opportunity for people to become Wild Oyster Ambassadors, where we have this I think a really cool PowerPoint presentation that we give to community groups and to landscape architecture firms and to public officials and to colleges. I mean, so that's, that's something that can be easily trained and you can do it remotely, but you know, COVID will be over <laughs> some 
someday sooner rather than later, I hope. And then, then what we will need is all hands on deck to actually help us build a reef. Okay, what can you do? You can spread the word. You can tell people about us. It's interesting because we get we get contacted by people literally all over the world. I mean, I was contacted last week by someone in Ireland who wants to restore oysters. And I said, wow, this is great. And maybe there's someone a little closer to you. <laughs> but, um, you know, feel free to use any of our resources. And people, like, when I asked them, like, how did you find out about us? And they said, I just Googled, like, oyster shell recycling or oyster restoration. So people are really um, interested. So you can help spread the word about how cool oysters are. You can volunteer. And of course, you could donate to help us keep the wheels turning. In the spirit of Environmental Voices Rising, Women at the Mic, I'd like to finish up by asking you about other women who inspire you with their environmental leadership. The first two women that I thought of were her deepness, Dr. Sylvia Earle, who is a very famed diver and a National Geographic explorer, and her daughter, Elizabeth Taylor, who makes submersibles and is stationed in Alameda and who also serves on our advisory council. And I chose those two women because they both are you know, inspire me, but they also, in 2019, they added San Francisco Bay to their list of hope spots. Hope spot is a place of environmental significance that has rare, threatened, or endemic species, and it has it has. I think they have potential for, to reverse the damage from negative human impacts. And having that designation for San Francisco Bay as a hope spot actually gave our bay international significance. I believe there's about 140 hope spots around the world. And the hope spots were inspired by the fact that we have a lot of national parks and green space. In fact, about 12% of the world are parks or somehow protected areas, but that's not true of our ocean or our waterways. I mean, there's very little of, aside from existing marine protected areas, there's very few places that are actually protected. So kudos to them for making San Francisco Bay a hope spot. Another woman, um, Oh, I have to mention the the, the three women from Berkeley, um, Catherine Kerr, Sylvia McLaughlin, and Esther Gulick, who in 1961 started Save the Bay. So, and you know their story. They're, they're, all three of them are just incredible women, and I don't believe any of them are alive now. But they, I have to mention them because, you know, that was like 50 years ago. And uh, the act of creating Save the Bay actually spearheaded many of the ongoing work that is being done today. And, uh, you know, they deserve huge credit for their, uh, for their vision. I just want to mention three women on the Wild Oyster staff, Casey Harper, Reiko Ando, and Chelsea Souza, who bring their passion and creativity every day to work, and they have great ideas, and they're just, uh, and they're very talented, and they keep me going. 
and they're all women. <laughs> Linda Hunter, thank you so much for spending time with us today. And I'll conclude with the quote from Rowan Jacobson. An oyster tastes good because at one spot in the natural world, something went right. Thank you for listening to this episode of Environmental Voices Rising, Women at the Mic. You can subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at env underscore voices.com. There is more information on our website, environmentalvoicesrising.com. If you have felt left out of the climate change conversation, not sure what all these environmental sustainability vocabulary words really mean, send us an email with your questions and we will help you get started understanding what is going on. We are happy to share our stories with you and remind you that yes, you can make a difference. 